Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, it's 2019 and you are listening to Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemisphere film review podcast with me, Dan, with a golden tan down in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, pasty as ever in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) So in this podcast, we cover fantastical films, so sci-fi, horror and fantasy, because we love discovering portals to hell in our basement being teleported to alien planets and being whisked away to magical faraway lands on a flying sofa. (laughs) How are you today, Conrad, in the year 2019? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, I've been enjoying 2019 so far. How about you? Mm, Yes, yes. Recently made a trip to Adelaide, which is a very underrated city in Australia. I think everyone should go. Mm. It's Very relaxed, fantastic food, and the weather was very hot. (laughs) But good. (laughs) We enjoyed it. Which is a a switch from everywhere else in Australia. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The weather forecast is just, it's just hot, okay? (laughs) So, Conrad, did you have a nice New Year's? I never do anything for New Year's. I'm really boring. I'm always in bed. (laughs) I just, yeah, I don't think I've seen the New Year in for a decade or so and the only time that I used to be up was when my dog used to go crazy because they don't like the fireworks oh yes 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 yeah but no I was fast asleep when 2019 happened (laughs) how about you um it's definitely gotten more quiet in terms of my celebrations uh I think I was actually working on a project (laughs) up until about 11 o'clock um Wow. And then I just, we, we watched the fireworks on the telly and <laughs> I don't know, we watched a movie, I think, and then we went, just went to bed. It wasn't anything too exciting, but it's all right. No. So we had a few late entries in our Ask Us Anything, mm-hmm. which I thought we could do in our mailbag today. Yes. We had some questions from Amy Batalabasi. Hey, Amy. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. She's a very successful short film director. And she asks, what horror movie did you see as a kid or teenager that really freaked you out? Now, I know that you didn't watch horror for a very long time, and I'm wondering if that's because there was some deeply scarring childhood experience that we could explore here. (laughs) Well, it's incredibly embarrassing because I I hated horror when I was a little kid, and so anything that was even remotely horror was terrifying to me. So... (laughs) Uh, my traumatizing horror movie when I was a kid was actually uh, Ghostbusters 2. Wow. Which is not traumatizing at all. <laughs> but that that character, that painting guy, was horrifying to me. And, and just the idea yeah. of that 
that pink ooze just being everywhere. Oh, yeah. I had nightmares for weeks. That was, that was my <laughs> traumatizing movie. Not even a horror movie, really. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't actually remember being traumatized by anything particularly as a kid. And I was exposed to an awful lot of 18-rated movies. Mm. I watched The Terminator fairly young. I mean, I wasn't in double digits when I saw that for the first time. Right. And Alien, and that was 18-rated. I mean, I just remember being really badly traumatised by things in children's films, actually. Right. And I think that's something that may come up in our discussion today. (laughs) But I'm working on a video essay about the never-ending story and I remember just how much the death of Artex the horse uh, absolutely scarred me to the bone. Mm-hmm. I was so horrified by that. And I saw the first Ghostbusters in the cinema and the librarian lady at the beginning of Ghostbusters. Yes. That, that, yeah, that featured in my nightmares for a while. Mm. But I don't remember seeing a horror movie as such that traumatised me. The last time I remember being traumatised by a horror movie actually was the Japanese movie The Ring. Yes. Ringu. I mean, I remember it because it was on, it premiered here on Channel 4 on TV and uh, there's film critic Mark Kermode and he did this intro and he said, this movie is terrifying. He talked about all the reasons why and sort of explained the whole J-horror phenomenon and then he said, there is a scene right at the end of it that will scare the living shit out of you. And then the movie started and I thought, okay, bring it on. I don't think so. I haven't been scared by a movie since I was 10. So Mm. (laughs) do your worst. And it scared the shit out of me. (laughs) And I had a television in in my bedroom and I was really not happy about it after that. No. No. Traumatising experiences. I can understand that. Yeah, but I can't. I can't say that Kermode didn't warn me. But yes, but uh, Mr. Kermode, actually, I should say, mentioned us in his podcast over the uh, Christmas period. Mm-hmm. He did his top ten worst films of the year, and when he was talking about the Nun, he mentioned that his favourite thing about the Nun was our joke about it, which is that it's yeah. it's full of jump scares that just go quite quite Nun. <laughs> That was fun. (laughs) So how about the film that we're looking at today? Will it be filled with jump scares? (laughs) I don't think so, because today we're going to be doing a childhood nostalgia special. Childhood nostalgia. Oh. Let's uh, go to the oubliette and find out what it is. Okay. Over by the oubliette. Oh, it's very quiet. Yeah, it's weird. All of the films have turned into ornaments. Hmm. Maybe if I touch one of them and say oubliette. Worth a go. Oubliette. Whoa, that was an odd experience, wasn't it? Ah, yes, here it is. Wow. Okay. That worked. I'll just just close the trapdoor. Okay. Okay, so the film that we have today, which is a childhood nostalgia special. Childhood nostalgia. We've both seen it, Mm. although you may not remember it, is the 1985 Disney fantasy film Return to Oz, directed by Walter Murch and starring Ferris Abolk, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, uh, Nicole Williamson, Jean Marsh and Piper Laurie. 
Jean Marsh, she was in Willow, wasn't she? She was, yes. So Jean Marsh was playing an evil witch hell-bent on world domination in Willow. And for a switch, in Return to Oz, <laughs> she's playing an evil princess. I'm not sure she's hell-bent on world domination. She's just a bit vain. <laughs> <laughs> so, Conrad, what is the plot for this film? So Disney's Return to Oz is a very, very belated sequel to the classic MGM musical The Wizard of Oz, and it takes up the story six months after the tornado that took Dorothy to Oz the first time. And we discover a family in crisis. The house still hasn't been rebuilt because Uncle Henry is sort of malingering. He's broken his leg during the tornado, but now he's all better, but things don't seem to have moved on. And Dorothy can't sleep because all she can think and talk about is Oz. So Aunt Em decides to take her to the pioneering Dr. Worley, who specialises in experimental electric shock therapy. On children. (laughs) On children. (laughs) It sounds like a great idea. Uh, so yes, Aunt Em leaves Dorothy in the care of this this highly esteemed doctor yes. uh, and, and scary head nurse. And a mysterious young girl warns Dorothy that the therapy is permanently damaging patients who are being locked in the cellar and helps her to escape during a thunderstorm that knocks out the power. They fall into a, a river outside the surgery and they're swept away. And when Dorothy wakes up, She discovers the young girl is gone, but she has returned to Oz. But all is not well in Oz either. The Gnome King has reduced the Emerald City to ruins and turned all its inhabitants to stone, including her friends, the Scarecrow, the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man. So Dorothy goes on a quest to set things right with the help of her new friends, Belina the Talking Hen, TikTok the Mechanical Man and Jack Pumpkinhead, along the way having to avoid the evil roller-skating wheelers and the terrifying head-swapping Princess Mombi. Mm, Great. (laughs) Sounds lovely, doesn't it? (laughs) Sounds like the sort of thing I would take my kid to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, doesn't it just? Okay, so I guess we'll take a break and then have at it. Yeah. Okay, we are back to talk about Return to Oz, the 1985 mm. sequel to Wizard of Oz. Conrad, you've seen this before, and I apparently had, but <laughs> don't remember anything. I remember one scene from this entire film, uh, and it was the almost the last scene before ah. Dorothy goes back to Kansas, and the Ozma character goes through the mirror. Ah, yes. That is the only scene I remember in the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this is a film that I've seen many times. So this is one of my, I think I've mentioned it before, I used to have a collection of films that I used to watch on a Sunday evening before going back to school. Ah, and yes. Not surprisingly, all of them featured children around about the age of 10 going into a fantasy world and staying there in many cases (laughs) because it's a damn sight better than going to school Hmm. and being bullied. Um, So, yeah, I used to watch these sorts of films all the time on a Sunday and Return to Oz was one that I really liked. It's surprisingly difficult to get hold of. It's only recently been pressed to Blu-ray by Disney 
And even then it was part of the Disney Movie Club. Mm. And it wasn't on DVD for a very long time. And actually it was released by a company called Anchor Bay, which licensed a few films from Disney on the proviso that they remove Disney's name and brand. It's not on the packaging and Disney aren't mentioned at all. So it's almost like they're ashamed of this movie. Yeah, normally Disney is just plastered everywhere when you watch a Disney film. So when I watched this for the second time, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I didn't even realise it was a Disney film. And also they do mention that this film is not an actual sequel to the uh, the film uh, Wizard of Oz that came out in the 30s mm. because uh, there are a lot of things that they mentioned in this, in this film that did not happen in the first film. No. <laughs> um, so this was a lot more closely um, adapted from the books. Yes. Uh, from Al Frank... Baum. Mm. Um, so he wrote a whole series of Oz books, which I didn't know about. <laughs> and this one's based on the second and the third one, The Marvelous Land of Oz yeah. and Ozma of Oz. Yes. Lots of Oz. <laughs> yes. Did each book have the word Oz in it? Oh, yeah. He knew his branding. <laughs> <laughs> he knew what he was doing. Yeah. So Marvelous Land of Oz was 1904 and Ozma of Oz is 1907. Right. Yeah. So it's it's both books sort of merged and several characters are sort of put together. Like Princess Mombi is a combination of two princesses. Oh, yeah, right. it's it's not exactly a direct sequel. And I think it shocked people when it came out mm. in a lot of ways, because I think people had such a strong image and a strong nostalgia for the 1939 musical. Mm-hmm. They were kind of expecting that again. Yes. And there are no song and dance numbers in this movie. (laughs) No, no. It it didn't really feel like the same. It was in the same world. I mean, even even the fact that the extent of of production value was a lot lower in this film than the original. It didn't seem as extravagant and huge and magical and and musical. It felt felt quite kind of smaller and a lot... I don't know, a lot of effects that were very obvious... Like lots of green screen scenes mm. and lots of... I mean, I did love the claymation stuff that was in this. That I felt yeah. like that was the definitely the um, the high point in terms of production and, and special effects for this film. Yeah. I mean, originally it was supposed to be shot all on location, but the budget was slashed yeah. shortly before they went into production. So because the Disney execs changed and the incoming ones didn't have the same faith in the project. So it was kind of sad for Walter Murch, who'd nurtured this thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a very well thought of editor, sound and picture editor, and he'd worked with Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas on things like Apocalypse Now and Godfather Part Two, mm. And this was meant to be his big directorial debut, and he wanted to bring Oz to the screen in a way that had never been seen before, hewing much closer to the original tone of the books with the darker elements and the satire that's in there. And it failed. I mean, it it bombed big time in the box office. and, And he went back to sound design and editing and worked on Anthony Minghella movies such as um, The English Patient and one of my favourite films, The Talented Mr Ripley. Oh, love it. And yet I think the film has been re-evaluated since then. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's what we should do here. I mean, it's interesting you saying about the production value, because I actually think Wizard of Oz, which I rewatched in preparation for this, looks terribly cheap <laughs> because it's all very, very cramped sets with very, very obvious painted backdrops. It looks like a filmed stage performance to me, mm. which is fine. I've never particularly liked it, I have to be honest. Actively hate is probably a more close description. Right. I'm not a big musical fan, and I was watching the movie and thinking, God, we're stuck with the Munchkins singing forever. <laughs> it's just one interminable song after another. But um, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I actually quite like it. I think it's. A, <laughs> Do you? I, think, I love the film. <laughs> Everyone loves it. It's um, a stone cold classic. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think it's great for because it was originally in black and white, wasn't it? It was coloured in post. No, I don't think so. I wasn't think it's it? three strip Technicolor. And the moment when she goes from the sepia tone world of Kansas into the three strip Technicolor of Oz mm-hmm. is actually a three strip Technicolor shot, but they painted the set in sepia tones. And the person who opens the door is Judy Garland's stand in in a sepia coloured dress and wearing sepia makeup. That's amazing. And as she opens the door and the camera goes through into the Technicolor world, Judy Garland goes through and oh, she's I didn't in colour. Yeah, so it's three strip Technicolor. This film doesn't quite have the same switch over no. from Kansas to Oz. It doesn't. It's just colour all the way. It's colour all the way and it's pretty bleak, I would say. Yeah. I don't know. This is another production value thing that I think uh, was lacking in in this film. Like the cinematography for me, apart from some really standout scenes, it just looked flat to me, and it looked washed out and a little bit not magical. <laughs> when she's wandering around Oz, it just didn't seem like Oz. I don't know. I I felt in the original film when she entered into this magical Oz world, I felt like we were in Oz. It was weird and everything was brightly colored and it was fantastical but with this it was just a bit sad but i mean i guess that's the whole point of the film she goes to this world that has been taken over by the gnome king all the great colorful characters have been turned to stone so it's reflecting that but it seemed a little bit underwhelming when she woke up in Oz. Yes, it's not the bright, wonderful land of marvels that the original film presented. And I think Mm. that's one of the reasons why the film didn't end up being um, particularly successful. Mm. So the only time you get to see Oz in its full splendour is the last scene, which is oddly enough the one that you remember. Yeah. (laughs) So the big parade through Mm. that beautiful mirrored palace. Yeah, yeah. I guess they didn't really do enough location filming. No. I mean, similar to the original film, like it felt like it was just all in a studio and on a soundstage. Um, Like you compare that to Willow, Mm. which is this huge, like expansive landscape of, of trees and beautiful mountains. And even though some of it was matte painted, it looked still looked amazing. And even in, in Lady Hawk, which we do not like, (laughs) <laughs> that tremendously uh, location wise it looked really great there were some great scenes with the trees and the mist and um some great sort of uh shots on on castles on mountaintops um but this uh, it just felt fake 
all the way. <laughs> Very yeah. fabricated and and not great matte paintings. No, it, I mean, it's fairly opened out until she escapes Mombi's castle. I think that's a pretty damn impressive set, Mombi's castle. That castle of mirrors, mm. it must have been a nightmare to film in. Just constantly, yes. oh no, cruising shot again. Oh dear, we can see the cameraman. Oh dear, there's a cable. Like, that must have been so tremendously hard to get that right. Back when, you know, you didn't have digital <laughs> correction where you can, you know, frame by frame delete mm. a cameraman standing in shot. I loved that scene in the palace. Mm. I, I felt like all the scenes in this film that were inside, mm. where they could control the lighting, looked amazing. Yeah. And that hallway with those disembodied heads was super creepy if i had watched that as if i'd remembered it as a child i would have had nightmares from that it's yeah terrifying it's probably one that a lot of kids remember a lot of kids remember princess momby she wants to look pretty and so she's found a way of doing it which is to steal beautiful girls heads Yes. Sprinkle them with the powder of life mm. and keep them in cabinets and then she just sort of swaps heads. Yeah, like a pair of shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But throughout, the voice is Jean Marsh, but she changes her voice subtly for each different iteration of her character, which I really? think is really Oh, wow. That's amazing. I didn't realize Yeah, that. so she's speaking very softly when she first meets her because she's quite young. Mm. And then when she puts that fairly stern head on with the dark hair, she's pretty direct. Yeah. And then when you finally see her real head, which I feel sorry for Jean Marsh because that was billed as hideous. Yes. Which I don't think Jean Marsh is hideous, bless her. No. <laughs> but yeah, she does have very sort of gruff and angry voice the whole time that she's got her original head on. Yeah, it's very low as well. Like yeah. there were some scenes where I thought, did they just get a guy to do that voice? <laughs> it was so low. <laughs> Uh, It's also worth mentioning as well that Jean Marsh plays Princess Monby, but she is also, like in the original Wizard of Oz, um, there are some characters in the real world of Dorothy's Kansas uh, world that are translated into the Oz world. So Jean Marsh playing the the head nurse, is it, Mm. at the psychiatric ward? Yes. Um, Also, I can't remember the actor's name, whoever played the head doctor at the psychiatric ward, also plays the Gnome King. He does, yes, Nicole Williamson. Yeah, the thing that I find interesting about this is that in the original movie, I think it's three farm hands who end up being mm. the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man. Yes. And I think the witch is sort of like the town busybody. Uh-huh. Whereas in this movie, it's only the antagonists. Mm. So there aren't corresponding figures from her friends in real life. You have the head nurse is Mombi, the Gnome King is Dr. Worley, mm-hmm. the guy that's pushing the stretcher around the hospital mm-hmm. with the squeaky wheels is the leader of the wheelers. So it's all the antagonists, whereas all of her friends, you've got Belina, the talking hen, who is actually a hen from her own farm who strangely yes. <laughs> happens to be there and I have no idea how she gets there because she didn't go to the hospital with us. No. So I don't know what's happening there. Who knows? <laughs> Jack Pumpkinhead Ozma gives her a jack-o'-lantern head at Pumpkin and says to her, it's going to be Halloween soon. 
when she magically visits her in the hospital. And some people say that TikTok is reflected in Dr. Wally's electric shock machine, but mm. I think that's a bit of a stretch, to be honest. I, don't I think see it's a that. bit of a stretch, yeah. No, there's not really any similarities visually. So if all of this is something that she's imagining, then you have characters from the real world. But the humans that she meets in the real world are all evil in Oz. Hmm. And the inanimate objects and animals are all her friends. <laughs> so this doesn't bode well, particularly, does it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would interpret it as because she was having this traumatizing experience in this psychiatric ward mm. and it translates as a nightmare i guess in this oz world and it's a nightmare and all all her friends are turned to stone and it's been ruled by this tyrannical gnome king so it's, it's kind of reflected yes on her experiences in the real world as in oz so, yeah. I don't know. And of course, the Gnome King, his goal is to make everybody forget about Oz because then he'll be fully human. Hmm. And his counterpart in the real world, Dr. Wally, is trying to electric shock Dorothy's memories of Oz out of her so yes. that she can be more useful on the farm. So both of them have the same goal, which hmm. is to make her forget about Oz. Hmm. I was really confused when they would keep referring to him as the Gnome King. I really actually thought he was going to be a little gnome. <laughs> that would be fun. Because it wasn't spelt out. I didn't know it was going to be N-O-M-E gnome yeah. as opposed to G-N-O-M-E. I, I, I thought they were going to go to this, this kingdom and it's just going to be a whole bunch of little gnomes around them. Uh, but no. <laughs> no. Well, that would have been a reveal. I know the original had this whole don't look at the man behind the curtain, but I think if the antagonist of this movie had been a two-foot guy with a little green hat, <laughs> it would be great. Carrying a shovel, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, he could still be claymation, I guess. That would yeah. have been cute. Yeah. I mean, I, lo I love the claymation. I love how they conveyed these kind of morphing yeah. rock creatures that were, were done in claymation and also how they did uh, the Gnome King as well before he became more kind of human and he was just this talking mm. rock wall, talking mountain. Amazing. Yes. Really, really great claymation there. Yeah, it's beautiful work. It's, it's by a guy called Will Vinton who really is one of the big pioneers of claymation, along with Nick Park in, in the UK doing Wallace and Gromit. Uh -huh. So Will Vinton, his studio produced their first animated feature, full-length, The Adventures of Mark Twain, the same year. Oh, I love that. I've seen that. You've seen it? I haven't seen yes. that one. It's dark. It's very dark. Is it? <laughs> yes. It's obviously a marriage made in heaven. Then. Yeah. But yeah, he, he was nominated for a special effects Oscar for his work on Return to Oz. Uh -huh. And he lost control of his company in 2002, at which point its name was changed to Leica. Wow. The studio behind Coraline, Paranorman, the Box Trolls. I love Leica. Well, there you go. That's that's where it all comes from. It's all from Will Vinton. Wow. Coraline is one of my favourite animated movies. Oh, me too. I love that. I haven't even seen Kubo. And it's on Netflix. I have no excuse. I should watch it. <laughs> it's, it is good. It's, I don't know. I think it's a little bit more family friendly. It's not as dark. Because oh, okay. um, even like Paranorman is surprisingly dark. It is, yeah. I much preferred that to Frank and Weenie, the Tim Burton film that came out about the mm. same time. Yeah. I love Paranorman. Me too. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the, the claymation is great. I love the way that it's integrated seamlessly. It's it's one of the few optical effects in the movie that really blends well. Mm. I also love the animatronic stuff that they did yeah. for the the Gump character, which was just a moose head, it seems, attached <laughs> to a sofa, which they brought to life. A talking moose head sofa with palm frond wings. Yeah, he's a great concatenation that they put together to escape <laughs> yes. from Princess Mombi's attic. I also love Belina. The the chicken. Yeah, because chickens, their their movements are quite sort of herky-jerky anyway. Yes. The fact that the animatronics are quite jerky sort of works. Mm. And considering her size, I, I just imagine how complicated it must have been to, to get all of the workings into her and to hide it so seamlessly. Yeah. I definitely think the strong point of this film was the characters, like the uh, array of very strange characters. Um, so yeah. we've got Gump, the moosehead sofa, and then we've got Belina, the talking chicken. And then we've got Jack, the pumpkin-headed thing that had twigs for arms and twigs for legs. That I didn't really understand if there was a person in there or it was completely animatronic. I, I couldn't really see any limbs that could possibly be human in that um, character. It's a combination. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's puppeteered most of the time, but when they need full body shots of him walking, there is a performer in there. Oh, is there? Right. His name is Stuart Larange. Larange. Mm-hmm. He had to mimic the movement of the puppet. So the way he walks mimics the way that the puppet moves so that it kind of right. it's kind of seamless. The only difference really is the neck. If you look at the neck, Jack Pumpkinhead's neck is like a stick. Yeah. But when he's walking fully, obviously he has a human neck. Yeah, okay. I didn't actually notice that so much. No, they, they shoot around it really well. Similarly to TikTok, he was too short to have a person possibly in there. Yeah, it's fascinating how they bring those to life. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I got to the end of the adventure, I really cared about all of these characters. I actually really like all of them. Mm. I think mainly because they're funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Belina's always wisecracking the whole time. And she's voiced by Denise Breyer, who also voiced Zelda in Jerry Anderson's puppet show Terror Hawks. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, really talented voice cast and really lovable characters that are sort of quipping all the time. Like the Gump, who has that wonderful line about, I should have quit while I was ahead. Yeah. (laughs) I know, he he had the best lines, uh, I agree. Um, I also uh, think similarly with, with the antagonists, with all the evil characters, mm. they were very evil. Like Princess Mumbi was terrifying. Yeah, she is. Especially when she got her true head and she was screaming and, and trying to um, stop Dorothy from escaping. That scene in particular was just amazing. Like I felt yeah. super tense and, and really just cheering on Dorothy and her her crew trying to escape. Yeah. We should talk about the fact that the film was very strongly criticised and rejected by parents particularly for being too dark. Uh What do you think about that? Because I struggle in retrospect looking at it to see how it differs in intensity to any other children's fantasy. I agree. I think it's just as dark, if not dark enough, 
compared to, you know, the Dark Crystal or the Labyrinth. Mm. And even Never Ending Story, they seem a lot darker. I mean, I felt like apart from Mumbi and the Gnome King, the Wheelers weren't terrifying for me. I felt like they could have been scarier. Oh, right, okay. Um, Just the makeup on their faces was just... A little bit contrived mm. uh, when they first appeared and they had those kind of masks on their heads i thought oh that's cool but then they were just helmets and <laughs> sort of real faces and i was like oh okay i think that would have been more terrifying as masked figures rather than humans on yeah really clumsy roller skate wheel thing <laughs> yeah although it's quite an achievement the roller skating with big wheels on your hands and feet i think that's quite impressive oh yeah i can't even imagine how many times i must have fallen over <laughs> it must have been a lot of times <laughs> <laughs> it must have been quite hard on your on your shoulders and your arms as well because yeah. you had all four limbs on wheels so you mm. were hunched over probably bad on your back as well so uh, yeah probably Quite an experience for those actors. Um, but overall, I think the movie wasn't that dark. I think it, no. it could have been darker. And I think what led it down was some of the production value made it seem a bit dinky and mm. not as scary as it could have been. If it had the same production design as, let's say, like the Dark Crystal, it could have been terrifying. Like, really, really terrifying. Yeah. Um, Well, what were your thoughts? Well, yeah, I don't understand it. And I always bought into the director's comeback on it, which was people were complaining about how dark Return to Oz was, and yet they were taking their kids to see Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Nazis bloodily melt away and explode, (laughs) and multiple (laughs) people are shot (laughs) and get their faces chewed up by propellers. Mm. Return to Oz is bloodless and almost entirely devoid of violence of any kind. Mm. I think it's more of a tone thing Mm. than it is actual violence. I mean, the director himself came up with his own reasons why he thinks the film was thought of as scary. And it's in direct comparison to the musical. So he said, one, it's not a musical. (laughs) Yes. And songs... No matter how much threat your characters are under, if everybody stops to have a bit of a song and a dance <laughs> every now and again, yes. it lightens the mood. Definitely lightens yeah, the mood. <laughs> it really does. So the threat sort of dissipates, and there's none of that here. No. There's no cuddly companion. He said, as wonderful as Belina is, she is a chicken. Mm-hmm. Toto was a cute little dog. So she didn't have a cuddly friend. And more importantly... A 16-year-old, which is what Judy Garland was when she made Wizard of Oz, with her breasts strapped down, pretending to be a 10-year-old in Jeopardy, is a very different proposition from a 10-year-old in Jeopardy, which is exactly what uh, Farrah Zabolk was at the time she made the movie. In fact, I think she was nine. Let's talk about Feruza, because isn't she just amazing in this film she is really great for a child actor she is she really exudes that sense of innocence and and just not really understanding the world yeah and it's very it conveys really well there are just little nuances like when she's putting jack Pumpkinhead back together she asks him where did princess momby get all of those heads and she does this thing with her face as she says heads she sort of involuntarily grimaces as she says it Mm. and it's it's just little subtle things like that you think she's nine and she's doing all this stuff it's really quite incredible and i think that's the problem the film has is that feruza is just so lovable in this 
and so good and so clearly nine years old that watching her being dragged upstairs by a woman who's hell-bent on cutting her head off at some point mm. is a bit disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Even more so seeing her strapped down to a gurney about to be electrocuted oh, that, is not great. I didn't really... I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Like, <laughs> It's sh- so how is this? How is this legal? I mean, even in this fictional world, why would they electrocute nine-year-olds? That's insane. And I think that's the thing that ultimately is the most terrifying thing about this film and turned parents off almost immediately and surreptitiously scares kids too because why does Aunt M leave the child that she's looking after? Why does she leave them with these people? Yes. It's the ultimate betrayal of an adult. Mm. Kids are expecting their parents to look out for them at all times and all of a sudden they're thrust into this situation. I mean, for me... I went through a childhood hospital overnight stay experience when I had my tonsils out. Me too. And I think it captures that perfectly. The whole being left alone for the very first time. Yeah. And Aunt Emma actually says that. I've never left her out of my sight with strangers before. So that whole thing of being alone in this room waiting for this stretcher to come to take you away for an operation, they nailed that mm. whole feeling. Yeah. It's a scary movie. It has to be said. It is a scary movie. Mm. I, it does have a lot of dark elements to it. Um, and, and yeah, the, the emotion and the threat is, seems real. But yeah, I, th- I don't know. I think as a child, you're not going to notice production value. You're not going to notice no. that this is a green screen and this is animatronic and this is claymation you're just gonna see threat (laughs) apart from the ending i felt like there weren't any moments where they were safe no that's a good point they were always being chased there was always a threat they were escaping a palace and when they were escaping they they were on this flying sofa and they were being chased by the wheelies Mm. and then they arrive at the gnome king and then they're captured by the gnome king so like there wasn't any sense of ah we've just got some time to spare and talk about our feelings or anything like that it was it was constant yeah running away or uh, trying to get somewhere and i think also the fact that all of her friends in oz didn't have human faces they no there was a talking pumpkin a moose head a chicken (laughs) and a big brass teapot really yeah um tiktok so there wasn't any that kind of human element as in the original uh wizard of oz where Hmm. you know tin man's just a guy painted with silver Silver. (laughs) and (laughs) you know the lion's just a guy dressed up as a lion and scarecrow's just they're all obviously human yeah um so you have that sort of human element but with this having pretty much inanimate objects as friends Mm. doesn't have the same warmth no i guess no you're right and as wonderfully as the characters are all realized by the the voice cast and the puppeteers i mean it's uh, the puppeteering is all uh henson associates brian henson is the voice of jack pumpkinhead oh right um so as well done as all the characters are Mm -hmm. you're right they just don't have that relatable human element to them. I, I guess it's some. It's not something that you can really grasp emotionally. Yeah. Now it's time for random trivia. Dan, what have you got for us on Return to Oz that will amaze and inspire? Mm, well, uh, the piece of trivia I have 
It's to do with TikTok. Just to describe to the listeners, he's a very spherical brass metal robot thing uh, that yes. has these kind of twiggy metal arms and a face. He doesn't have a mouth. He just has a moustache that wiggles around whenever he's talking. <laughs> but he also yeah. have, has these stumpy legs that he walks on. And this character was actually manned by a very flexible gymnast. Mm. So this is described to me and I still can't even imagine it. So it's a gymnast <laughs> inside this big round spherical metal robot thing and he's bent over backwards I believe yeah. so that he's yeah. uh, what? I don't I don't understand the logistics <laughs> of this. How can someone walk when they're bent over backwards in this huge metallic thing? <laughs> yeah he's got his head in between his legs and he's looking at a screen that's upside down so that he can see from outside what he's doing. Uh-huh. But yeah, he's walking backwards whilst bent over in a yoga position with his head in between his legs. <laughs> what? Yeah, I know, it's just ridiculous. But the guy who did it, Michael Sundin, apparently really enjoyed it. Okay. Really got into it. So they had to time him. He was only allowed to be in there for two and a half minutes. So they would actually screw the top on, say, you're ready to go, and then action, and then they'd click a stopwatch, and at two and a half minutes, they would stop, quickly take the top off, because it was airtight as well. Oh, right. <laughs> so he's physically exerting himself in a yoga position backwards, <laughs> no, no fresh oxygen. Oh, my God. <laughs> But yeah, so think of that every time you see TikTok walking through a scene. Yeah, yeah. And just how amazing he looks. <laughs> it's cool. Mm. So that's our trivia moment. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about the music for this film. So David Shire had never done a big orchestral fantasy score before he'd never had that opportunity he'd always done smaller tense dramas things like the conversation uh-huh. and he was given this chance by walter murch who'd worked with him before to make this score and i just think this score is breathtakingly amazing it's played by the london symphony orchestra it's so lush and beautiful every character has a theme and all of the themes are really well thought out They're all in a musical form that Dorothy may have heard in her own life, so they could still all be part of her fantasy. So TikTok has this wonderfully showy, brassy number that you can just imagine would have been played at the time. Mm -hmm. And you have really subtle things like Ozma's theme is on cello, Dorothy's theme is on violin. And when she pulls her through the mirror at the end, the two themes play simultaneously and you suddenly realise that one is the counterpart to another, which is another way they hint that they're one and the same. (laughs) 
which was really hard for David Shire to do. He composed Osmus' theme first and he went through dozens of Dorothy themes before he came up with one that worked as a counterpoint without just being a counterpoint, was a melody Mm -hmm. in and of its own. Okay. And both of them are beautiful. Um, And it's just things like the, the choice of instrumentation. So it's entirely strings until she gets to Oz and then the rest of the orchestra slowly starts to come in. It's just an incredibly detailed, beautiful and well-executed score. And it's one of my personal favourites. So, yeah, I was just wondering (laughs) whether it had the same effect on you or whether it's just me. Yeah, well, I think you've seen the film a lot lot more than I have and obviously (laughs) listened to the score a lot more. Uh, Obviously, I didn't pick out all of those details in terms of uh, musical themes, but I did feel like the music in all the scenes that were lacking production-wise, visually, musically, pushed it. I, I felt like the mm. the score elevated every scene, even the dinky ones mm. and the terrible green screen ones. Um, the music was amazing in every scene. In terms of what you should do as a composer in a film, I think this film should be studied by students. Yeah. Similarly, with, with the sound design, I thought the sound design was pretty good, but actually not as good as I thought it could have been. No. Uh, I think there were elements of it that were interesting. The fact that the wheelies in the real world were the orderlies wheeling around these stretcher beds and they would make the squeaking noise and that same squeaking noise was used mm. uh, when the wheelies in the Oz world were rolling around on their on their wheels. And I thought that was a, a, something I, I don't think I'd ever seen her done mm. before, having a real-world sonic element be translated into a, a fantasy world. Yeah. Um, but in terms of some of the, all the other sounds, there was nothing that really stood out. Well, the, the scene where Dorothy is lying in the dark in the hospital waiting to be electrocuted and you can hear muffled screams from the cellar, mm. the thunder and lightning is striking outside that's cut the power and the ticking of the machine that's been wound up behind her yes. slowly winding down. And it's like that for sort of <laughs> quite some time. Mm. In terms of tension and creating the world that she's in, I thought it's really good in places. Mm. There was such a lot of attention paid to the interface between music and sound design. Mm. So originally Jack Pumpkinhead's theme was on clarinet mm-hmm. and Walter Murch, being the sound designer that he is, listened to it and said that's going to clash with Brian Henson's voice. So they dropped it to bass clarinet. The infamous bass clarinet that pops up in every score. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I do like it. (laughs) Oh, it's great. I I think bass clarinet and and bassoon as well are amazing in Mm. in scores because they have have an interesting tone to them, but the lower register. So... The great yeah. for kind of underscoring certain scenes and creating a, a sense of um, quirkiness. So I, I generally I just think the sound design and the music is just um, the music particularly is incredible, and I think it's so sad that David Shire didn't get an opportunity to do another big score like this. Mm. He went back to fairly small ensembles again. Okay. Um, most recently for David Fincher on Zodiac. Oh, okay, right. Mm-hmm. 
one good thing that you should say about it is that it's a female protagonist. For a lot of fantasy adventures, it's all young boys learning to become men and mm -hmm. pulling swords from stones and defeating things. And yes. Dorothy wins over people with her unerring moral fortitude and sense of what's right and what's decent. And mm. she's unbelievably kind, even at the point where she's falling to her death and Jack Pumpkinhead is saying, I'm sorry, because he feels responsible for the gump falling to pieces mm. midair. And she says, oh, don't worry, Jack, it can't be helped now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even her goal even is not to get back to Kansas. No. Like in the first film. Uh, her goal is to save the scarecrow. Yes. Like she, she's completely selfless. Yeah. Although it has to be said, she is responsible the only reason the Gnome King was able to destroy the Emerald City and turn everyone to stone is because he got the ruby slippers. They fell off her feet on the way back to uh, Kansas. Yes. So the ruby slippers are these sort of deus ex machina. They're the way that she restores everything back again at the end of the movie. But they're actually responsible for all of the problems to begin with. So just to clarify, the ruby slippers just grant whatever wish you desire. Yes. Just three clicks of your heel... And it's yours, which mm. is problematic, isn't it? <laughs> I also laughed quite a lot because the Gnome King was wearing the ruby slippers. So he's this yeah. big bearded rock guy mm. wearing these very fabulous sparkling <laughs> <laughs> ruby slippers. And he keeps showing them off as well. It was, I don't know, an unintentionally funny scene. <laughs> yeah. Thematically, there's another thing I was going to touch on, which is, is there a message in here about colonialism? Oh, okay. So the Gnome King's big beef is the fact that the emeralds in the Emerald City did not belong to Emerald City. Yes. They were all his. His gnomes made them to worship him. And somebody dug down from above and just stole everything and took it away and then enriched their lives with it as a decorative thing. And all he wants is to take it all back. Mm. And I wondered whether this is a metaphor for colonialism, for turning up and taking over a country and taking all of its precious commodities and just screwing over the people that live there. Yeah. <laughs> if that's the case, then the movie's message seems to be, well, screw them, they've got no right to complain, we're going to take it all back anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I raised this is because L. Frank Baum, although he was an advocate for women's suffrage, so you can see he has a strong female character mm -hmm. as the protagonist in his story, and he was behind women getting the vote, which is great, he also wrote two editorials suggesting, quote, our white safety depends on the total extermination of the Indians. Having wronged them for centuries, we had better, in order to protect our civilization, follow it up with one more wrong and wipe these untamed and untamable creatures from the face of the earth. Right. So his attitude towards Native Americans was not great. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, knowing that, yes, I think this is completely <laughs> about colonialism. I, don't know. I mean, there wasn't any sense of compromise. There wasn't, uh, well, uh, maybe you can have half the emeralds back. No, we, we just... I Okay, this was a thing in the film that really kind of irked me. The fact that they could defeat the Gnome King by laying an egg in his mouth. Yes. 
by Belina the chicken. Which is the only other plot point that gets introduced at the beginning and resolved at the end is that she can't lay her egg. So she does at a pivotal moment. Yeah, I I don't know. I felt like, who's going to expect that? That just seems like something that's completely out of the blue. It's like if the antagonist was this huge, I don't know, Sauron, right, from Lord of the Rings. Mm. And the only way to to defeat Sauron was to give him a cookie. <laughs> he's he's lactose intolerant or something. Yes, exactly. Uh, like a completely meaningless thing to defeat a huge evil force. Well, I don't know. I, I could go all textual analysis on you and say it's a symbol of feminine fertility that destroys the Gnome King's oh, toxic masculinity. okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> but it's sort of fun, though, isn't it? I mean, I do love all the stuff where all the way through the movie, everybody keeps saying, where's the chicken? And yes, yes, yes. She has a chicken with her. <laughs> and you don't know why this is important, so it's yeah. sort of funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought this is completely, I completely missed the point, but I thought the chicken was Ozma. I thought she was just going to, oh, wow. you know, in, in fantasy fairy tales, you know, the, the creature is actually the princess and she gets turned back and then she defeats the evil um, uh, bad yeah, guy. That could have worked. I thought that was going to happen, but no. It would have made a lot more sense than why the hell is Belina there all of a sudden? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought there was going to be something more whether the chicken turns into some huge magical unicorn that defeats the Gnome King or something <laughs> like that. Something a little bit more grandiose, but it was just yeah. too simple for my... Let's talk about the overriding message of this. (laughs) Where where are we going with this? Because you've got adults who are desperate to try and take her fantasy life away from her, Uh even by electric shocking her. (laughs) Yes. So she escapes into yet another uh, fantastical adventure and, and finally comes to this conclusion where she says, I wish I could be in both places at the same time, at which point the ruby slippers glow and she pulls Ozma yes. from the mirror where she's been imprisoned by Princess Mombi. So Ozma is the rightful heir to the throne. But there are lots of hints in the movie that Ozma and Dorothy are actually one and the same. Mm. That Ozma represents the Oz avatar for Dorothy, mm-hmm. which is why at the end of the movie, she can be in both places at the same time because. Ozma is still there and she can occasionally gaze into the mirror on her dresser and see Ozma with the chicken mm. and know that all is well. <laughs> so the, I don't know. Is that a happy ending? Yeah. Is that good? I, I mean, if, if you interpret it that way, if you take everything at kind of face value, does that mean that this movie, uh, the moral of the story is Dorothy has to grow up in the real world but she can dream about fantastical things when she's looking in the mirror in the privacy of her <laughs> her own room, but she has to grow up in the real world and be Dorothy in the real world. Is that what they're saying? <laughs> you know, you have to shove those fantastic ideas down and just keep them to yourselves. Suppress all of this and just think about it in your own private space. Yes. I think that's it because... The problems that are launched at the beginning of the film are Dorothy can't sleep Mm -hmm. and 
she's useless on the farm. Yes. She's no use to Aunt Em. Yes. You kind of feel like that's the only reason Aunt Em takes her to be electric shocked yes. is because she's crap. Yes. Yes. <laughs> she's tired and useless. She's, she's not in reality. She's dreaming about this fantastic land that no one believes in. But at the end, she represses that and does the work. <laughs> she does what she's told. All good. <laughs> and and they rebuild the house and everyone's happy. Um and, and that's, that's the end. <laughs> I don't think that's a good message. I don't know about you. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's another aspect of the film to point out that there isn't a happy ending, so to speak. I mean, there is, but there isn't. Mm. And so kids watching this going through this nightmare experience <laughs> and having this pseudo happy ending, <laughs> probably not the greatest experience for a child. No. Um, no, and it doesn't quite have the payoff that the never-ending story has. No. Which, again, ends up with this thing that, yeah, you can have this fantastical adventure, but it will only exist in your own mind. Mm. It won't materially exist outside of you. Is that a happy ending? Because I know as a kid I was disappointed with that. Yeah. At least in the never-ending story, he goes on a ride with Falcor and frightens the bullies. Although mm. I knew, even as a child, I knew that that was a fantasy and he wasn't really doing it. Yes. And again here, so you're left with, did she just dream all of this? And she's still a really broken, deranged individual who, but she, at least she's not mentioning it to anyone and she's just doing it in the mirror occasionally. <laughs> yeah. Is this progress? Yeah. I, is she going to develop some sort of split personality as she grows up? As she talks to herself in the mirror and dreams of a better life? <laughs> And waves at an imaginary chicken. Yes. And I assume the reason Belina's not there anymore is because she didn't lay her egg and they've cooked and eaten her. So she's just imagining <laughs> that she's gone to Oz. Maybe everything, all of her pets and farm animals will go to Oz. Yes. <laughs> this is start crowding up her mirror. <laughs> right, yes. So Oz is just a symbol for what, mortality? <laughs> what Quite saying? possibly, yeah. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards! Yes, it's that time where we give awards to our favourite or least favourite parts of the film in a number of completely pointless categories. Starting off, as always, with favourite quote. Dan, what was your favourite quote? I did really like Gump, the talking moosehead sofa. It's not a hugely memorable quote, but I found it quite funny. They just plummeted down on this mountain from <laughs> Gump falling apart, uh, and they've all just landed on this mountain. And then Gump, <laughs> Gump just says, that was an odd experience, wasn't it? Uh, but he's, <laughs> he's a talking moosehead attached to a sofa. I don't know. I think the, oh, the whole movie was very odd. And to have the oddest character of all say that was an odd experience was just hilarious to me. But um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. what was your favourite, Conrad? He did have lots of quips, actually, the gum. But my favourite one is actually in Mombi's Palace when they're trying to escape and TikTok goes wrong because he has three different turnkeys on his yes. back that need to be kept wound for his mechanical things to work. And one of them is action, one of them is talking, and one of them is thinking. And his thinking runs down, so he's still moving and talking, but he can't think anymore. Mm -hmm. And 
Jack Pumpkinhead says to Dorothy, if his brains ran down, how can he talk? And Dorothy says, it happens to people all the time, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was very funny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hair and costume. Did you have favourite hair and costume in this movie? Uh, I really like Princess Mombi when she Uh, has that get up with metal spikes coming out of the top of her dress almost victorian almost looking but like very menacing although they did kind of sound like venetian blinds when she walked (laughs) (laughs) yeah i know what you mean they obviously not made out of very sturdy metal so that kind of took me out of the menacing aspect of her character but i did like how they looked yeah, me too. I, that, that was my pick as well because it's such an ornate dress and mm. it has these sort of embroidered peacock eyes. So yeah, it says everything about her character, doesn't it? She's vain and showy, mm. but she's also secretly quite prickly. Mm. So yeah, yes. and dangerous. Yes. 80s. Was there a particularly 80s aspect to this movie, do you think? Mm. I spotted the blue lightning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the whole, the, the, the lots of claymation, uh, just stop motion in general was, was a very prevalent 80s effect, I think. Uh, mm. it, it had kind of peaked in the 80s. It got really good. Um, so mm. I guess that. Uh, for, for me, I think it would be the Wheelers costumes oh, yes. because they're very reminiscent of the 80s punk movement with the the neon coloured piping and the dramatic facial makeup with very bold colours on the eyeliner and and eyeshadow. It has a very strong 80s punk influence, Mm -hmm. I think. And I think as a shortcut to anarchy that threatens decent civilization, I think going for punks was a bit of an easy reach in the 80s when you were making a movie. Yes. Favourite scene? Dan, did you have a favourite scene? I think I mentioned it before. uh, The escape scene from um, Princess Mombi's palace. Very tense, very action-packed and suspenseful. Especially the scene where Dorothy is is trying to retrieve the powder of life concoction, which is is situated right next to Mombi's real head. She's opened the the door to it and she's reaching for it. And it's a very, very tense moment. Yeah, uh, mine is the same. And it's one of my favourite movie moments of all time, actually, is... The moment when she knocks that bottle over, Jean Marsh's eyes flick open and she yes. growls, Dorothy Gale! Yes. And the headless body of Mombi rises from the bed and all the heads in the all the way down the corridor, the disembodied heads start screaming. Uh, yes. And David Shire erupts with the full might of the London Symphony Orchestra and it just sends the hairs up on the back of my neck mm. every time it happens. I just think it's the perfect combination of direction performance lighting set design special effects everything everything it's just perfect Mm. uh yeah i love that scene (laughs) 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 it probably frightened a number of children to death at the time i I can only imagine it Uh, is there a cliche, a fantasy cliche in this movie? The one I've gotten written down is, uh, so the scene where Dorothy has to pick the ornament, 
that is the scarecrow mm. i don't know that seems like a very popular scene to have in a fantasy film and <laughs> a, a a decision scene choose this mm. or this uh, also in, in Indiana Jones. Yeah, Last Crusade with the Holy Grail, yeah. In general, in any adventure movie, there's always kind of mm. a scene where you have to make a decision and it always seems like an impossible decision. And when she gets it mm. right, actually when she does find the emerald, it's like, well, that's a given. An it? emerald? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a giant emerald crystal. Hmm. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> It's not the best disguise the Gnome King could have picked, is it no, really? No. Yeah, the Dark Crystal as well. The Gelfling has to pick the right shard to heal the crystal, doesn't yes, he? Yes. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a common thread. Mm, and and for you? For, for me, I was thinking uh, the all-powerful magical object, which we've talked about before, the Ruby Slippers, uh-huh. who are the cause of all woes. And it turns out the cause for solving everything as well, mm-hmm. which seems like a really bad idea and a really lazy device to have as a screenwriter. So I, I don't know. She clicks her heels three times and everything's fine. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Usually there's a doohickey that everyone's after that will do everything. Um, yeah. It's called a MacGuffin. Similar. Well, I think that it's similar. So the Hitchcockian MacGuffin was always an object that everybody was after, but that actually didn't really matter in terms of the plot. Like mm. in North by Northwest, they're always after this microfiche, but I mean, who mm. cares? Nobody knows what's on it or why it matters. Mm. It's just a, a means to an end, really. It is, yeah. Whereas in a fantasy movie, the MacGuffin is usually terribly important. But... Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. There needs to be a new term. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll have to come up with one. Something better than doohickey, which is what I went for. Um, <laughs> Do you have a favourite special effect in this movie? I know you don't like all of the optical effects because they're a bit crappy. I'm guessing it's the claymation. It's the claymation. Uh, It was just amazing to watch all these rocks moving around and and talking uh, Mm. and faces and creatures and Mm. amazing claymation um, seamlessly kind of composited in the scene with with the real actors as well. Yeah, I I would say exactly the same thing. And for our animator friends out there like uh, Andy Ramone, if he's listening, uh, here's a bit of technical detail for you. It was animated in ones as it's called because mm. often animation you wouldn't animate every single frame so the whole 24 frames a second film tends to run at mm-hmm. and usually animation does sort of 12 so it's two frames per one frame in in normal film time but in this case they animated it in ones every single frame 24 wow. frames a second which is probably why it's amazing <laughs> yeah yeah did you have a favourite sound effect? I'm getting the feeling there won't be. <laughs> or is it the wheelers? Yeah, nothing really stood out. I did like how they translated the wheelers, the orderlies wheeling around these stretches, that sound effect to the actual wheelers and that became mm. their, you know, their characteristic. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. But I don't know, everything else didn't quite sound that great. No other characters had any sort of sound that personified them i guess the gnome king he was a a rock moving around so they had that kind of crunchy rumbly rock sound but apart from that i i felt like they really could have done better with the sound and made it more 
immersive world sonically yeah i mean for me i like tiktok i love all the noises that tiktok makes yeah uh, especially when he walks because you can hear the back of his foot hitting first and then the front of his foot hitting it's always ka-clump 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 whenever he's walking okay yeah i love tiktok <laughs> i did think his whenever he blinked i've got an ice cream scoop that sounds very similar <laughs> to that <laughs> so it just <laughs> reminded me of ice cream every time he blinked <laughs> <laughs> That's another great sound. And finally, funniest scene. Was there a scene that made you laugh more than the Gnome King wearing the ruby slippers? <laughs> I think that has to be the funniest scene to be <laughs> because it just it just looked so ridiculous. He's supposed to be the the big bad villain of the whole movie and he's wearing these very sparkly ruby slippers i don't know it's it's (laughs) fabulous footwear yeah yes (laughs) yeah i mean i don't i think it's not a very funny movie there are lots of wonderful quips from gump and from belina yes um but it's still for all that the tone of the movie is not really gigglesome. And I didn't think there was anything in it that made me laugh at the film's expense either, because it works for me. Yeah, so right. I didn't have one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Which is not a good way to end our mooblies, but that's our mooblies. And we're back after another thrilling journey through childhood nostalgia. Childhood nostalgia. Mm. <laughs> it's time for us to decide whether Return to Oz should be beheaded and stuffed into Princess Momby's Hall of Severed Heads to be oh. taken out on Sundays <laughs> or what have you. <laughs> or whether it should be restored and allowed to prance in the courtyard of Emerald City for everyone to enjoy. Mm. Dan, you sort of had seen this (laughs) film before, but couldn't remember it. Uh, What do you think on revisiting it? Do you think it deserves to be released from the Oubliette? Uh, I think it has a lot of flaws, uh, uh, morally, like thematically, (laughs) as well as production value, there's, there's a lot lacking. Mm. I felt like they even shouldn't have included the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow because they looked very under budget to me. (laughs) Yeah, especially the Lion. His face to me kind of just screamed, kill me. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. I, I, I I can see why it flopped. And it's hard to detach myself from the first film because it's such a classic and and i i do feel like i'm constantly kind of comparing and i mean i did enjoy this film and i think it has some great scenes but i i kind of felt like a lot of the film did kind of fall flat a little bit i like it just enough i think just enough to set it free I don't know. There's something I just can't put my finger on it that just doesn't quite... don't know what it is. How are you, Conrad? You love this film, don't you? (laughs) I do, yeah. It's one of my childhood favourites. And, yeah, I mean, I've got it on Blu-ray and... (laughs) 
<laughs> I do watch it occasionally. I think it's because I'm not a musical person and I find the unremitting cheerfulness and primary colours of the classic original film just makes me gag. It's just too yeah. much. Yeah. So a, a film that is muted and shot through with an overall sense of melancholy and loss that has a nine-year-old girl being threatened with electric shock therapy mm. is just it's just my kind of bag <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's more me than singing munchkins so the fact that the film is shot through with much more of an adult sensibility and this underlying darkness appeals to me i also think it's very funny it's very well written mm-hmm. i think the production value they get out of the budget the budget was cut before they started filming i wish it had been location filming i wish it had been a little bit more exuberant and rich in oz but i think all of the internal stuff in Mombi's palace and so mm. on is just sumptuous and gorgeous to look at the performances are all great Farah Zabolk is incredible at the age of nine. Uh, quickly wanted to mention that she went on to star in The Craft and Almost Famous. Oh, yes, The Craft. So there's more magic in her filmography. <laughs> yeah. No, I think she's really good in this movie. And so is the rest of the supporting cast and the voice cast and the puppeteers. I really do love this movie Mm. and i think all the things that make it quirky just make it more fun to visit if you've never seen it before i think it's well worth discovering Mm. as a piece of 80s nostalgia and a bit of an oddity as well it's an unusual one yeah yeah so i i would vote to set it free i think it's worth watching and i think as a kid i think definitely go see it Uh, because they're not going to worry about production design and poor green screen effects. They're just going to be immersed in this magical world. And I think, as me, Mm. as an adult, I think I'm the worst audience (laughs) to watch this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. After all of that, I do agree it should be set free, but I do have some reservations. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's fair enough. So we're setting it free? Yes, we are. (laughs) <laughs> Mount that gump and fly away, return to Oz. <laughs> so great to see another film escaping the oubliette, especially a personal favourite. Hmm. So what are our chances of doing that next time? What will we be looking at, Dan? Hmm. Your choice. Well, I thought uh, we haven't done horror in a while. So no. we're going to be looking at the 1979 film... Phantasm, directed by Don Coscarelli. I have not seen this movie. So this isn't the pornographic film directed by Richard Franklin. Uh, not that I am aware of, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. It would be a, be a very different podcast. <laughs> At least expanding the genres that we cover to include porno. No. So it's the one with a PH, not the one with the F yes, at the beginning. It is, it is. Okay. It's a very interesting film. Well, I have never seen mm. it and I've always wanted to, so this should be interesting. Mm. I don't want to give anything away, but yes, okay. looking forward, looking forward to it. So let us know what you think of our choice for next time. Any ideas you have for films we should look at? Tell us what you think of our verdict on Return to Oz. We mm. are on all the social channels as movie oubliette and on gmail as movie dot oubliette mm-hmm. because i'm a moron <laughs> <laughs> you're not 
We would love to hear from you. And please rate and review us on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you're using because we need all the ratings that we can get. All the five stars, please. Yes, and recommend us to your friends. We're all about growth. Yes. (laughs) 2019, (laughs) it's all about growth. Sure is. (laughs) Well, Happy New Year, everyone, and uh, see you soon. Bye. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie you'll be at. Drink like that chicken! <laughs> <laughs>